If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. How can students use AI to help them understand what fields they may be good at without having to go into those fields? Being able to understand who you are, probably at an earlier age, might help these students in a lot of ways. What could artificial intelligence mean to you and me in our daily lives in a positive sense? Technologist, educator, entrepreneur, and author Jay Scott Christensen says understanding new technologies can help us shape the future. He has considerable experience in that area. In the 1990s, Scott co-authored the book Virtual Classrooms, Educational Opportunity Through Two-Way Interactive Television. Please note almost 25 years before distance learning with Zoom became the norm. And in 1998, he founded Kaleidoscope Video Conferencing, which for the next 21 years would provide video conferencing products and support for education and business. Currently, Scott is an associate teaching professor at the University of Missouri, and among the courses he teaches are entrepreneurship and media of the future and exploring the digital globe. Scott, how did artificial intelligence first capture your imagination creatively as something in which you wanted to work? Well, I think I've been a sci-fi fan for a long time. And so, of course, you always think of artificial intelligence as being some sort of robot that you could talk to. And that always seemed extremely creative and extremely interesting to me. But I've gotten into it more and more to see how a narrow form of artificial intelligence called machine learning is really going to have some great effects on our lives. Please define machine learning for me. I think I know what that is, but I might not in layperson's terms. So machine learning is basically where we give a computer program some tools that it can use to learn and make its own predictions and decisions. So let me give you a really simple example, and that's one of classifying different images. So if I wanted to have my computer be able to decide what the difference was between a dog and a cat, I could try to program all the different variations. You know, I've, I've got a cat that's bigger than my niece's dog. So, I mean, there's lots of variations there, right? And I'd have to work and work and work and work. But instead, with machine learning, what I can do is I can simply give the computer these tools, and then I just feed it 5,000 images of dogs and 5,000 images of cats, and it will figure out the criteria to use. So it makes these types of pattern recognition extremely efficient, extremely easy, and sometimes more accurate than humans. What will machine learning mean? Rather than asking you about today, let's do something fun. Let's project 10 years in the future. It's now the year 2030. Thank goodness the pandemic's over. What is machine learning going to do in different aspects of daily life in a positive way? Well, I think because of the pandemic, some of the things that are actually going to accelerate. So in the next couple of years, I think we're going to see several things accelerate and then it will build on from that. So I think in 10 years from now, it's probably realistic that you would start to see self-driving cars in a lot of places or even self-driving delivery. I think we're going to see our supply chains, how we get everything from the farm to the table is going to be optimized and I think it's going to be automated in some way so that if you do have a pandemic, if you do have some sort of problem, you're kind of inoculated from that, right? So we don't have to worry about our food supplies and things like that. I also think medicine is going to be 
just a fantastic area where this is going to benefit us. Once again, doctors do a lot of pattern recognition. So radiologists, pathologists, cardiologists, they're looking for patterns. And these machine learning algorithms can do a great job at that. In fact, there's been 50 already that have been certified for human use. Wow. Your website, in fact, mentions AI and machine learning and how it predicted the pandemic. Would you tell me a little bit about this? Yes. Machine learning and AI has been used a lot in different aspects of the pandemic. And one is to kind of look at patterns, right? So look at patterns of flight, look at patterns of sickness. And so that's been used to kind of look at how it spread and try to understand how these diseases can spread. And then it's also been used to try to understand the proteins involved with this virus. So this virus has these proteins that it produces just like any living thing, although I don't, viruses are always kind of weird to me as to whether they're alive or not, but they produce proteins and scientists are using machine learning to understand how these proteins interact with the cell. So better able to predict what treatments might work, what vaccines might work and things of that nature. I was surprised to see on your website that there's actually a way the average person can help with Fold at Home. I had never heard of Fold at Home before I looked at your website. Would you tell me about that too? Yeah, so it's just a way that you can donate your computer's resources, its memory, its processing power when you're not using it. So when you're not in a Zoom call, you can tell your computer to go do some calculations for scientists that don't have a supercomputer or don't have the resources. And so you take a little bit chunk of data and your computer chunks away on it. It does an analysis and spits it back up to the quote unquote cloud. And this way you can contribute not only to the pandemic research, but lots of different research projects. So there's a lot of ways that you can do this. So Fold at Home is one of them. And University of California at Berkeley has been one of the centers for really figuring out how to distribute these big tasks to small computers all over the world. I believe that's foldathome.org. Is that right? That website? Yes, yes. And I mistakenly said it was Fold With Me one time. And it turns out if you go to YouTube and search for Fold With Me, it's people that will fold laundry on YouTube videos (laughs) and you can fold with them. Okay. So uh, either way, you're going to have something interesting. I think I'd rather help the scientists than fold the laundry, but that's just a personal choice. Right. We haven't said a word yet about your area of specialization, which is machine learning in the classroom. How might we reimagine AI to make a better educational landscape for the future? Well, I think that we need to really focus on how we can do this to make it student-centered. How can students use AI to help them in their learning, to help them understand what fields they may be good at without having to go into those fields and then find out that's not their area of choice. For example, I got a degree in biology. I really liked the courses, but it turned out the work was really not what I wanted. And so maybe there's some patterns there that we could recognize. Also, individualized training, individualized learning. So some students may find my class boring because they have already seen this material or they can grasp it easily where some students might find it so challenging, it's almost discouraging, right? So how can we modulate lessons for individual learners that are going to be right at the challenge level that's going to keep them engaged? You have, I believe, a grant for brain science in the classroom. How would you, as a teacher, use that? How do you say, okay, this person is really advanced, so they're going to be bored if I go ABC, but this person doesn't quite get it. How do you use that to give an effective lesson? 
So yeah, brain science is basically how we learn things, how we fire our neurons when we learn something and how we wire them together when we really learn something deeply. So you, I'm sure, have experienced this. You probably don't have to think a lot about how to tie your shoe anymore because that has been wired into your brain and that's the way we learn. So there's lots of different pathways we can use. One is the social pathway. So a lot of students will do very well when they are able to interact with others. So for example, in my classrooms right now, we use Zoom, but we go into breakout rooms so that they can talk with each other. So if I explain something to you or you explain something to me, I'm going to remember it much more than if I'm just listening to a lecture, right? Because we're involving different pathway. There's a social pathway. I get to know you. I get to speak to you. So there's lots of different pathways, reward pathways. So some students are really turned on by getting a little reward, whether it's a little badge, whether it's a little checkbox, whatever it is. So those students that are going to learn that way, let's set a path forward for them where they can use that kind of reward pathway. Other students that are going to learn by social interaction, let's set a pathway forward for them. What are some of the resources you really like for educators that work well today with using machine learning in the classroom? Well, there's a number of interesting ones, and I think that you checked one of them out before that is actually a piece of software that lets you really kind of understand what a person's personality is like. So being able to understand who you are probably at an earlier age might help these students in a lot of ways. So I think that's one of the ways that we can kind of help students look into themselves and really find out who they are before they, before they get old like I am. I know, <laughs> or like I, I am. <laughs> yes, I, I know who I am right now. And so I know the things that are going to motivate me. I know the things that aren't and the things I'm going to be good at. The software was called Crystal Knows, I believe. And you can actually do this for people that you haven't even met yet. So you could run my profiles, my LinkedIn and other social media profiles that will go scrape those off the web. And we'll try to then say what Scott is like. So it might be useful prior to an interview or to a phone call. That's exciting, but it's also a little bit scary. Scott also offered an additional resource. Well, I will tell you, there is a good book and it's also on that learnabout.ai site. It's called Deep Medicine by Eric Topol. He's a doctor. And I would say there's also several podcasts where he's been on as well. And I would say if you really want to know about how AI or machine learning is going to affect your life, I think it's going to be in medicine first. And so I would highly recommend that book. And I'm sure you could check it out from your local library. How big a margin for error is there with a crystal nose or some other machine learning? There is a big margin for error, and it all has to do with two things. And these are both sometimes referred to as black boxes, meaning it's a little bit difficult for us to understand what's going on inside them. One is when I told you the machine figures out the criteria that it's going to use to determine whether something's a cat or a dog, it may not focus on whiskers or whether it's four-legged. It may focus on something else. So we want to know what that criteria is being used. The other black box, so to speak, is the training data. Okay, so if I only give it calico cats, it may not understand what some other type of cat is, right? And so we've seen that before with different training data, where if you are, for example, let's just go back to medicine, cardiology, we know that heart attacks exhibit themselves differently in males than they do in females. So if we were trying to train a system to recognize 
patterns that may be leading someone toward a heart attack or a cardiac event, we want to make sure that we're training that not just with males, or we want to limit the use of that just to males based on our training data. So there's a lot of ways we have to really think through how we are going to train these systems. And so you can introduce bias, you can introduce some problems into them if you're not thinking carefully. Which introduces the idea of the ethics of the system and AI and not using it for bad. What are some other guidelines so that we make it something that's a positive force for the future? Well, unfortunately, right now, there's not a lot of guidelines, but I think there will be. And I think we're starting to have these conversations. I'm hoping that companies, as well as organizations like my organization, the University of Missouri, will soon be looking at how AI and machine learning is getting incorporated into the systems they use. So is it getting incorporated into the systems we use to admit students or select students to our school? Is it being used in our HR systems to determine what faculty we hire? We better take a look at those things. So I think that there's been more and more cases where we have found that there's been some problems with it. And so that's where we have to kind of have maybe a, a review board or something like that that can actually look at these programs and find out how they're, what's inside that black box, so to speak. The big problem that's occurring to me is that people are not static. The kid today that's 18 and maybe not mature enough for college might be mature enough at 20. Is there any margin for that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why you need some humans involved, right? So a lot of this decision-making, humans can factor in adjacent areas. So getting back to the machine learning idea, those are very narrow. So I can't take the machine learning algorithm that understands the difference between a cat and a dog and say, well, now would you help me with identifying some hippopotamuses, right? <laughs> so, so it's only been tasked with this one particular thing. And so likewise, it can't pull in adjacent information. You know, Scott did poorly in high school, but he's been out for a couple of years. And maybe now is the time for him to be successful in college. And that's the type of expert judgment that we want to have from people that have been through it. As an entrepreneur, totally different area here. What do you see in terms of the way machine learning is going to figure in the future? What would you tell your students for future job skills and how to remain employable and relevant in 2030? Yeah, so you always want to be looking for where the puck is going to be, not where it is, right? The Wayne Gretzky quote, you always need to be learning. You need to be constantly keeping up to date with what's going on. And I really encourage my students to do this, whether it's getting a little email in the morning from one of the papers or reading something, but just doing something like that because it's compound interest and you'll start to understand some of the dynamics of what's going on. And I would say to students or anyone else that's listening there that one of the big things that's happening with all these types of technologies is it's lowering the barriers to entry. So you don't have to be a computer scientist to create a machine learning algorithm. Actually, I do this with my students. They just use their phone and they can wave their phone and we can collect data on whether they're waving it or making a circle or whether they're going up and down. And we can actually program a machine learning algorithm through the web very easily. And so two years ago, I would say, no, we can't do that. We got we to gotta get some mathematicians in here, some computer scientists. It's going to be really complicated. The barriers to entry in these areas are just coming down dramatically. And so that means if you're sitting at home and you've got your idea of what you might be able to do or create, I would say get started now. 
What have you really loved learning this past year with the pandemic as we're all lifelong learners? Well, in some ways, I've really enjoyed getting to know my students and seeing how they're rising above their situations. I'm always amazed when I ask my students what they're doing or what I should know about their lives. And they are really stepping up to the plate and they are working very hard. They also want to solve some of these great problems that we have. So we have the pandemic, but we have climate change and a lot of other things that we need to deal with. And I am excited when I get to talk to my students and see how much interest they have in tackling some of these big problems. How do we apply machine learning to combat climate change? What are some of the ways? Oh boy, there's lots of ways. One is how we look at energy. So there's lots of ways that we can optimize our energy grid. We can optimize our energy usage and that can be helped with machine learning. So even things such as learning thermostats, such as the Nest thermostat, will actually learn your pattern of behavior and will adjust the thermostat accordingly. And that way your house isn't too hot or too cold or is not being heated or cooled when you're not there. And so there's lots of ways that this can be used. Learning the pattern almost scares me a little bit because we all like to think as people, we're not that predictable, but we are. What are some of the applications besides Crystal Nose that you personally really like to use and would recommend in your life? Oh, there's a whole bunch that I would recommend you check out. There's one from Microsoft that's kind of fun to play with where it identifies money. Okay, so just you can take your phone and you can just simply use the camera on it and point it at some money and it will tell you that's a $10 bill. It will also do it with humans. So I can point it at myself and it will say 50-year-old man with a beard smiling. And (laughs) this is for people that can't see that well. And my dad actually had macular degeneration and, and there's a probability I might get that as well. So I'm excited about those types of things that would allow me to continue to be independent if I did lose sight. There's lots of aids like that that can help people. And once again, the way that those programs got programmed is not by somebody sitting there and programming all the details of what a $20 bill was. They just gave it lots and lots of examples of money. And of course, in the U.S., we have all our money is green and it's all the same size. So it's a little more difficult than when you go to Europe or some other countries where it's in different colors and different sizes. And I have this website, learnabout.ai, where I just try to put in a lot of these apps, a lot of these good books that I've been reading. And so you and others might want to check that out. And I actually probably need to update it with some of the (laughs) more recent stuff. Learnabout.ai, where we can find the name of the Microsoft app you just mentioned and a lot of other things. Let's also do a shameless plug of your website. Where do people find that? They can find it christiansonjs.com. But I will tell you, I also have a little newsletter called The Free Range Technologist. It's just all myself talking about the the books I'm reading or the resources I've found. You can find that at frt.news. FRT? news. Uh, yeah. What if someone listening to you right now, since many of our audience members are makers, gets inspired and says, I want to make an application like the one you just referenced for Microsoft, something that's going to help people. Where do they start? Well, there's lots of great resources for learning about AI and how you can integrate it into applications. So MIT, as well as Stanford, have some great YouTube videos that are actually their courses. There's also another site that I was kind of mentioning where we use our phones to train an AI. It's called Edge Impulse, and it's free for any developers. It's free for students and teachers to use. I would go check that out, and you'll really learn what some of these capabilities are. 
I didn't want to forget to mention that your book about video classrooms was published in 1996. Wow. And probably we wouldn't have caught on if it weren't for this pandemic. What do you see as the current technology that could be to today what video conferencing was to 1996? Ooh. What's the next Zoom is what I'm really asking. What's the next Zoom? Yeah, and I think we are going to see in the next six months a lot of big changes. So, for example, Zoom is going to do some big updates here in the next month or so that will make it a lot easier for teachers to integrate different applications, different interactive activities. Because right now I have to you know, share my screen, go to a website. It's kind of clunky, and you know, I'm a pretty technological guy, uh, technologically savvy, and I get lost sometimes. And so, uh, or I have something clicked on that's wrong. So I think it's going to become a lot more easy to use. I think it's going to be much more efficient as far as bandwidth, because we're also finding a lot of students just don't have the bandwidth. So AI is actually going to be used to optimize the bandwidth in these video calls. So right now, my background isn't changing much, but it still gets updated. Okay, so We don't need to update that, but also you can probably tell from my audio what my lips are going to look like. So maybe the AI can just manipulate that image on your side. So it's more like an avatar, but a very lifelike avatar. Wow, that's going to be amazing for the future. I'm wondering when you teach global digitization as well, what are some of the cool technologies you see in other countries that we haven't quite adopted yet in the U.S., but might in the future? Well, one is this technology called blockchain, and I think we're going to see other countries actually adopt it before we do. And it's a a way to have a very secure database that is not alterable, meaning that you can't go in and edit it. And that's good because if you're in a country that has a high level of corruption, and I was able to pay someone off to change some records that said, I own the land that you're on and you don't own it, then that would be pretty bad. But if you have this kind of unalterable record in this blockchain, then you can kind of combat that type of corruption. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting applications there. And it's also going to be used a lot with our supply chain. So how things get shipped from one place to another. So I think that will be very interesting to see how that evolves. What kind of a timeline would you predict that it would take us to really adopt blockchain and make it widespread? I think we're actually going to see that sooner rather than later, especially with certain companies. So when you start to look at Walmart, these big companies, well, they can kind of mandate that anybody that wants to do business with them has to adopt a certain system. In fact, they've done that many times over the years. So I think we'll start to see that rolled out into mainly these big companies. And certainly there's other areas like accounting. So the big four accounting firms actually have massive blockchain projects going on right now because for accounting, it's going to make auditing a lot easier if we know that somebody can't actually manipulate their spreadsheet, if you will, or their ledger. Honesty enforced by machine. I love it. What about the concern people have when you talk about AI, when you talk about machine learning, are robots going to take my job? What are the job skills of the future that you encourage everybody to get today? Yeah, so you really should get familiar with technology, whether it's by creating your own podcast, creating your own YouTube channel, learn how this stuff gets created. We tend to just be consumers of it. There is a lot of concern over job loss, and we'll have to see how that kind of comes to fruition. But I always tell my students that you want to do something to make yourself invaluable. 
So often that is being kind of the overlap between two different areas, right? So I'm a technologist. I'm not the greatest technologist, but I'm certainly not the worst. And I'm a teacher and I'm not the greatest teacher, but I'm certainly not the worst. But there's not a lot of technologists that really get a kick out of teaching at the undergraduate level. And I love it. So that's kind of my special skill that makes me invaluable, that special overlap. So be the accountant that also knows something about fine art, right? So have that overlap where there's uh, makes you stand out with your skills. What's been one of the most fun experiences you've had within the last six months or so as a technologist who is also a teacher? One has been seeing my students that have done great with their own startup. So I have one young woman that just got $50,000 for her startup. Actually, wow. two of my students did. She has this company called Rebundle Hair Extensions. And so she wanted to recycle these braids and these other things that were being wasted all the time. So she, that was her original concept. But then she realized, wait a second, this stuff is made out of oil. It's made out of toxic chemicals. We can do better. And she actually has a plant-based hair extensions, I guess they're called, and is doing fantastic with that. So she just got a $50,000 grant to continue to develop that. And I have another student. He's actually still a student here at MU. And he has developed this kind of like a, imagine a big balloon, a hot air balloon with a drone attached underneath it. And this can go way up almost to the edge of space and it can sit there for many, many months. So he's looking at this in agriculture. Could you actually monitor crops? Could you monitor disease over a large span of area for many, many months rather than having to fly an airplane and go back and forth? Young people today are amazing with their innovation. I don't remember being that innovative when we were in college. Right. Scott, if people could only get one thing from you and your work about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you want them to take away from you? I would say you need to get out there and experiment. Okay. Even if you have a project and it fails, the most important thing is that you learn something. You built your own capabilities to do something else in the future. So that's the way I look at all my projects. I will happily take on a project that has a good amount of risk or I'm going to likely fail if I can learn something. So always be learning. Scott, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You and I have been listening to technologist, entrepreneur, teaching professor, and author J. Scott Christensen. And he'd like to invite you to get a look at the future. Check out his website, learnabout.ai, for the resources he referenced and a lot of other ones about artificial intelligence. That's learnabout.ai. And subscribe to his newsletter, The Free Range Technologist, at frt.news. frt.news. Here's one more link as well for Scott's website, christensenjs.com. That's Christensen spelling it C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-O-N, christensenjs.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. Com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at Pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.